Hey guys, it's Anthony here back again. There's an amazing episode that you guys are going to be able to listen to in just a moment. Um, the guest today is Michelle Griffin. She's amazing. The way that she's able to, you know, in, in, a, in a way, get me to think a little bit different about traditional education was quite interesting in today's podcast. Uh, not only does she have, have her bachelor's degree, she also has her master's degree as well as working on her doctorate degree. So I think that is incredibly fascinating, incredibly interesting, incredibly different than my overall background for you guys that know my story. But it was kind of refreshing to hear a, a different take and a different look and a different perspective on um, on how you can develop and master skills. Now, that's not to say that she doesn't spend some time. Um, you know, indulging in certifications and other forms uh, and mediums of education. But traditional education is definitely something that she has a passion for. And I think in the world of HR and the world of work today, there is still a, a, a spot and a space and uh, a desire to see traditional education on a resume and, 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 and in someone's background. Um, so we talk about that in today's episode. We also dive into um, you know, the entrepreneurial ventures that, you know, one can lead down and one can walk down that entrepreneurial path as it pertains to HR. We dive into, you know, change management tips inside of an organization, kind of getting a CEO and a team to buy into new changes, change, changes, excuse me, I'm having a hard time talking today, um, and, and understand how those changes can help the business grow uh, overall. And then we also talk about just all things employee engagement, all things leadership, all things employees first, business second. Uh, me and Michelle had uh, a little bit of a different take about four months ago when we first spoke about what should come first, right? She felt that the HR world um, should support anything that the business is doing and, and, and not look at employees as a secondary factor, but the, the, the business itself should be protected. And, uh, you know, you guys know me. Uh, I had a very different take on that. But through her entrepreneurial ventures and through her experiences over the last four months, she may be coming over to the light side, not the dark side, because, you know, helping employees and loving employees first, I would say is the light side. Um, we dive into uh, a bit more again into leadership and really ways that we can cultivate an experience that employees will want to stay, employees, employees will want to get excited about. And then, you know, I personally give her a few a few tips that I would say are, are a little bit outside the box, but super thoughtful around um, employee experience, as well as around uh, entrepreneurship and things to be thoughtful about. So I'm super excited about this podcast. I'm super excited about this episode, and I'm super excited that each and every one of you guys are enjoying the E1B2 podcast. Um, we're up to about a thousand downloads a month right now. I know that's not a lot, but for me, coming from zero and and, and not really knowing what I wanted to create uh, when I started this podcast, I'm super blessed. I'm super thankful, and um, I know for a fact you guys are going to enjoy today's episode. So please, as I always tell you to do, stop it, take down some notes. Pause it for a moment, really understand and soak in all of the wealth of knowledge that Michelle uh, definitely gives us in today's episode. And I just want you guys to enjoy it. So please uh, send me an email, send me a DM, send me a, a tweet, do something to get my attention and let me know what your thoughts were on today's episode. And in the future, if Michelle and, and what she's doing in the world of work is interesting to you, uh, please don't uh, hesitate to reach out to her personally and take her up on her consulting. 
bidding, take her up on bringing, you know, bringing her into your organization and seeing if she can create some change and, and helping your overall workplace. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. I'm going to stop talking now and uh, let me know your thoughts. Enjoy. All right. What's going on, guys? Anthony here again with another amazing episode of E1B2, Employees First, Business Second. Uh, I do have a very special guest on today. Um, it's, it's taken some time to get her on the podcast, but I'm super excited about it. I know that she's had a lot going on in her personal life, and we're definitely going to talk about that as well as talk about a lot of things, um, you know, employee experience, culture, leadership, business overall. Uh, and so today I have Michelle Griffin on here today. I pronounced everything correct? Yep. Perfect. How are you? Good. Thank you. Good morning. Perfect. Um, so yeah, so let's jump right into it. I guess tell everyone um, a little bit about quickly, I guess, who you are, because I like to I like to kind of um, make sure that the, the podcast is filled up with content and not too much of a you ever seen those those podcasts where it's like a 45 minute backstory before they get into <laughs> the content? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I don't want to be rude to anybody, but um, but yeah, I guess just give us a little bit of a background because it's always helpful. Um, and then you already know what I want to talk about. I, I want to get into um, your new entrepreneurial venture that has been uh, kicking off here and uh, working out pretty well for you. So talk to me about those two things. Yeah, so I am an HR executive, essentially. And so for who I am, um, I've been doing that for about a decade and before that, I was an auto theft and arson investigator. So I have some investigation background, which helps with workers' comp claims and some other things, which I didn't know that that was going to be helpful. But I've, I have a bachelor's in psychology. I went to the University of Tampa. And uh, then I, ha- I got a master's in industrial organizational psychology, which is a research degree of human capital. And now I'm actually getting a PhD, which has been rather difficult while I've also had my startup. (laughs) So I'm a very busy person, but I'm a second year PhD. So um, I try to, most people, they don't understand like the process of a PhD. So um, a first year is in coursework. A second year is doing both dissertation and coursework. And then a third year is your dissertation research and writing your dissertation. So I'm a second year and I'm in the process of doing both. And I've been working on my startup for about six months. So that's been a very hectic part of my life. And let, let me jump in really quickly. I want to go back to something you said. You said that you originally um, conducted investigations on like car theft. And yeah. Arson? Yeah. It was auto theft and arson. I did that for six years at Mercury Insurance. People still, people still, uh, still steal. There it is. Uh, cars. Yeah, their own cars. <laughs> oh, interesting. So yeah, okay. a lot of it is. So the fraudulent side of it is when they set their own car on fire, or oh, yeah. uh, set up for their own car to be stolen, or do a drug trade, or something like that. And so a lot of times it's it is uh, real, and you know the insurance obviously pays for that, but there's an investigation first to make sure it's it's not fraudulent. And so I would, I was part of, well, I, I spearheaded the, the entire investigation department for the state of Florida. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was fun. Um, 
and actually the reason why I transitioned was I got salary capped. I, um, I got to the point where I was no longer eligible for a raise because I had been there for so long and the position, they had salary banding. And so there was only oh so much the position would make and unless I were to become a field special investigator. And I didn't want to do that because I, I didn't want to travel around the state of Florida and I, and do that kind of investigation. So I, that's when I went back to school to get my master's degree and transitioned into human resources and organizational development. And that became my, you know, I had a very strategic career transition, which most people fall into HR. They, uh, they're usually either like an office manager or there's some kind of um, just usually a person in the, in the office that starts to get handed the HR duties and then they figure it out as they go. I was very strategic in going to school for it, getting a certification in it, uh, starting at an entry level and kind of learning the process through um, working with, you know, higher level executives, employment law attorneys and things of that nature to strategically build my career that's rather than fall into it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, I think that's a similarity that we have to some degree. And I say it like that because uh, your, your passion and love for traditional education, I think is a little bit different than mine. <laughs> it's a little bit different than a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think eventually they're going to name a school after you uh, <laughs> at, at some point. <laughs> um, no, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, from a strategic standpoint, that's, that's something that I've, uh, I've definitely tried to do. And I think that's really what I've tried to do my whole life, to be honest, as I think more about it. But um, I, I guess to stick on that, and then let's definitely move on to your entrepreneurial venture here. Do you think, for people like me and you, do you think that's a strength or a positive thing? Because I tend to think so that, like, I guess it's because I have a lot of listeners, right, that are um, that are actually in college going through the process of thinking about which area of pure business they want to jump into because there's so many different buckets of business they can jump into. Do you think it's a little bit more of an advantage when you're thinking about strategically aligning yourself with HR or to just naturally fall into it, right? Well, what are your thoughts on that? That's an interesting question. I've learned as I've kind of grown my own career, it's hard to get into HR. And I don't, I don't exactly understand why. I feel like it's almost like a librarian position where, you know, people who are librarians, they stay there in the company forever until they retire. So, and then, it, you know, there's only one of them. So there's, there's no position until one person leaves. Um, and for whatever reason, HR is really hard to get into from the ground up. Uh, you have to know somebody. You have to, someone has to almost take a chance on you because everyone wants someone with experience and then you can't have experience unless you get experience. Yeah. So for, for whatever reason, HR has become that, which is ironic because HR is the ones that hire people that want to find the right people and people that are driven and trying really hard. It's the one area of the industries you can't get into. So education helps a lot of people with uh, H- that are hiring HR or the executives that oversee it. They're, they tend to be, I would say, an education snob. They like to see bachelor's degrees for management. Typically, a master's is highly approved of and sought after, um, so I think it's it's helpful to have the education. 
especially when you're in professional fields like that. So mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely something that you would have to do on purpose. And you would have to know that that's the field you want to go into. Uh, you'd have to stand out above the rest, which means like internships or working part time, really trying to get the office environment. So it's, if you, if you fall into it, most of the time, you may not know if HR is something that you like to do. Yeah, I tell people to network, uh, really, really get your name out there. And that's how I was able to get my first HR position, which is a heck of a story. Uh, it took a lot of networking. It took about four different connections into the same company. And I happened to know the owner of a subsidiary that the company owned. And that's, I was a shoe in at that point, but I originally found out about the position through someone I met at a training course for a certification for HR. And then she passed my information off to a recruiter. That recruiter um, contacted me and told me about the company without the company name. When I described it to my husband, he realized that was our friend's company. He contacted our friend to say, you know, he didn't, had no idea they were even hiring for HR because he's just the owner of the subsidiary. And then when I, um, contacted the recruiter back and said, is this the name of the company? He, uh, he told it to me at that point. And then when I went in for the interview, I knew the owner of the company, one of their lead um, developers and the recruiter. And so I, they were getting my name from all these different directions. And I became like a referral f- through multiple avenues. And that's when the owner of the company agreed to hire me. But it took knowing a lot of people to get, and that was just to become an HR coordinator. That was my very first HR job. So you have to know people. It's, it's really hard to fall into it anymore unless you're already working at a company and they start giving you work that you're not familiar with and then you have to fumble through it. Yeah. And then to even get your knowledge up, you have to do certifications. You have to do conferences, go to speakers, uh, learn from other people. You, you, to be successful in it, you can't just do the job. You have to have a lot of education behind it, even if it's not formal education, but certifications and things like that to really be successful and keep up with the laws and things like that. So it's a, it's an, it's a difficult industry, to be honest. I would also, I would also add for, um, for my, for my younger listeners and, and, and I'm really young too, so I shouldn't really be talking like I'm 45 here. Um, no, but for my, some of the college students that, because uh, I, I actually spoke at like San Diego State and then I spoke at Texas State recently. So there's been like a, a nice little, um, nice little group of, uh, of college students that have been really doing a great job of downloading the podcast and, and emailing me and reaching out to me. Um, I, I told you guys this at, at my speech at Texas State, and I'll just leave you with this brief note. Also think about and be very thoughtful about the the different areas of HR, right? So from, from, and, and I think me and, and Michelle are two examples of the different sides of HR. You know, I'm more on the employee experience uh, part of HR, which is really starting to pick up here in the last five years or so, I would say, just looking at it from afar. Um, and, and there's a lot of different components to what an employee experience looks like. Um, and so there's all different types of, of HR roles that you can kind of fall into. So I would be very thoughtful about doing a little bit of researching, spending 15, 20 hours kind of understanding the different types of, of HR roles that you can fall into, um, figure out which one uh, is the best fit for you personally, and then kind of cultivate and build your skill set around that. 
Um, that's kind of what I've done personally. Um, that's, yeah, a, so. that's a really good point. And on top of that, the titles that go along with those different areas are really important to this industry. So if you're, I, I, when I was first starting into the industry, I didn't know what some of the titles meant. I'm like a generalist, for example. So a generalist is someone, typically they say they work in all areas of HR, and that's actually not true. Uh, they tend to focus on employee relation issues, uh, some of them, a lot more of the employee experience side of things, training, and uh, things of that nature. While they're still employed, uh, they'll, they'll be the ones to deal with, you know, the, the terminations, um, not necessarily onboarding. You'll have an onboarding specialist in many large organizations. There's a benefits specialist. Um, there's specifically for recruiters that will work internally or externally. Um, so there's um, different, you can have junior levels, you can have senior levels. There are salary um, bands that go along with that. So knowing the titles and knowing what they mean uh, is really important. And also when a company, there's been multiple times where I've had the opportunity to choose my own title as I grew through an organization. So if you're with a small company and they're growing really quickly, and they, you're doing your reviews and they say, you know, do you, what, what kind of avenue do you want to go into? Do you, if you have the opportunity to go into benefits or be a generalist or different areas, um, be very mindful of the title that you have. Cause that yep. is weirdly enough, that's something that's important to this industry. Um, it tells when you go to leave the company and you're looking at another company, um, obviously they'll look at your job history and the, what skills you've developed in those jobs, but the, the title that you had speaks kind of very quickly to a person looking through the resume if you have a specific title that tells um, very quickly what you should have been doing in that job. Very so that's true. important to pay attention to while you're looking at that too. Very true. Uh, and the last tip, which will lead us into um, your entrepreneurial journey and the things that have been happening with you personally is this. Um, I talk about this all the time, guys. You guys know this. Um, and I'm sorry to kind of um, bring this up again because it's probably 30 episodes isolated just for this topic. Um, try to understand every single component of business, period, end of discussion. Mm -hmm. What I've realized over the last, I would say, 18 months, because that's really, honestly, guys, and that's why I've always said I'm not an expert. <clears throat> I'm not someone that um, you should necessarily always, you know, say that, you know, always listen to it and, and, and never, you know, in pretty much isolate anyone else that's in the space. I'm relatively new to this traditional space, but I've always been around the dynamics and the aspects of HR. Um, but one thing that I've had as a benefit and one thing that I've had as a strength that I've realized over the last few years is my understanding of business. Uh, I started two companies, both were successful to some degree. Um, my, my, my role after that um, after I left those companies, where was was the head of marketing for a chain of fine dining restaurants. Then I was doing some consulting at a level where I was looking at all different dynamics of operations and marketing. And then my first HR role, if you want to call it that, um, I had my my hand in each pocket. I had my hand in the traditional HR and the employee experience side of things. I had my hand in partnerships and marketing and branding and operations. I had my hand in everything. And so the last seven, eight years, I've cultivated this knowledge of business and, and, and branding and marketing where I can sit at the table with someone that runs a 50 to $100 million company and at a theory level, at a structural level, kind of understand 
where the company's going, where the company wants to go. And I can have an authentic um, and honest and, and, and pretty competent conversation with that person, which, which then they start to look at you with a different, in a different lens. A lot of people look at HR people as very, how would you describe that, Michelle? I'm trying to. They, they tend to see people, the HR people as um, pretty fluffy is kind of what I tend to call it. Um, And, and not, not entrepreneurial. They, you know, they, they, the business executives know that their employees are obviously their most important asset, knowing that that's the face of their company. That's what brings them revenue and, uh, they understand how empo- how important their employees are and that Do HR is the liaison between the company and the employees. And that's really all that they're seen as. Yeah, It's difficult. And there's a lot of conference talks to the HR world about how to get a seat at the table, how to advance your career. And that's a lot of what's talked about and advised is knowing the business language. Uh, if you... Uh, to the listeners out there, if you have a drive to excel through the ranks and climb the corporate ladder um, or even start your own company, which is I'll get into kind of what I've done with myself. Yeah, let's, let's get um, into that. <laughs> so I um, with that, it's really important that you understand the business language. You have to be able to this was hard for me and this is probably a good lesson learned. You have to be able to read business documents. You have to be able to understand financial reports. I didn't. I, uh, when I was getting my bachelor's degree, um, I, mine, I majored in psychology and minored in marketing, which required me to take one accounting class. And that was my only history and background in understanding business finances. Um, my sister is getting um, a bachelor's now. Um, she's actually starting with her AA finishing with that and then going into the bachelor side of it. So she's in the first couple years right now. And she's, she has to take four accounting classes just for the business administration side of things. And so she, it was really interesting that they make her do that, which I'm kind of bummed that my, my education didn't do that. She understands business finances a lot better than I do. And that she's also trying to climb the corporate ladder and things of that nature kind of later in her career path by going back to school, but um, pay attention to those classes. If you're in school now, they, at the time, I, I didn't see the importance of it. I didn't think I would ever do anything that involved the business realm like that. I didn't understand that many areas of the company Im- impact the company like that. And in order to climb the corporate ladder, you have to speak their language. HR has to have value to the company and the executive that's in that role has to be able to create reports that speak their language in a mathematical way. So I have to now calculate um, ROIs, which is the return on investment of different areas and different programs I'm putting in place. I have to understand if it's costing the company money and kill it or develop it and understand that it's, it's actually helping the company and how fast does that program pay for itself because um, obviously there's going to be upfront costs in recruiting when you're hiring people, onboarding people, and then you have high turnover, the cost of that on a realistic level. And so there's everything that HR touches impacts the company financially, and you have to understand that. So that's the kind of thing that I didn't understand, <clears throat> excuse me, until much later in my career. And while I climbed the corporate ladder very quickly, um, because that 
I understood that that was a strategic advantage, knowing that while you're still in school, paying attention and knowing that while you're able to, you know, gain the knowledge and pay attention, it will take you pretty far. And you can definitely pick a career path based on different areas that you like in school. But then understand that even if you pick a path, other things you've learned in school are going to be very valuable. Got it. That's that's that was that was a really good tip. Actually, I personally uh, just took a slight little note down for my new role that I have now. Um, and then let's and then literally let's jump into this because I've been saying that because uh, I'm very eager to hear uh, the developments of your, your of your career. Um from this entrepreneurial lens but yeah this this new founder that i have he's uh he's like that he's um he's very big on not necessarily the financial side but i can take the psychology of what you're trying to say which is you need to be able to prove that a lot of the um things that you're doing from an hr whether it's employee experience whatever it's going to be are are working or not working and show them in some sort of data format whether mm-hmm. that's financial, whatever the case is going to be. And um, my founder is very big on deliverables. What, what What's going to be the outcome of you doing this? Like, um, I'm very big on gray areas and not everything has a, a, a black and white ROI. Um, but I've started to then pick up this skill after working with him for a very short time already that there is some value in showing the black and white and not just... Um, embracing the uh, the beautiful yet scary world of the gray. Um, so yeah, that was an interesting point you made. But but let's let's dive in to um, to this in- independent entrepreneurial journey you decided to to embark on. So I normally like to go into how you made the transition, but I do have a lot of content already that kind of describes a few different people's transitions. Even though I know everyone's journey is different, but talk to me more or less about um, the types of clients you're working with, what, why you made the decision, and then how you've structured this and how you're starting to actually get business and, and what you're doing with those clients. So what I had, I had always, when I started to transition into HR 10 years ago, actually more like, yeah, probably like 2010-ish is when I started to look to go back to school and um, th- and switch into HR. Ultimately, I wanted a life that I could travel and have a lot more flexibility. So my thought process back then was to become a consultant. And so I figured if I had 10 years of experience, a uh, lot of education and certifications, I'd be qualified to do that. So I purposely set out to become a consultant. And then this is me kind of fulfilling that um, kind of dream, essentially. So I, I wasn't exactly sure how to do that. But um, my husband is really good at business and business development. So he's kind of been my mentor through the process of how to actually build the business. Um, so I'll kind of talk a lot about how he's helped and what he's done to kind of prepare me for that. And Social media has been a huge impact on how I've obtained my clients, how I've communicated with, you know, networking and getting out there both locally and uh, internationally. And so when it was probably 
May, I think, of last year that we bought the domain michellemaygriffin.com and just built an image of me, of what we wanted my professional image to look like. And this is an important tip because I have heard multiple entrepreneurs tell me that um, when they were starting up their business, they focused a lot on the name of their company, um, making sure that they had the right website. They'd put a lot of time, effort, and energy into uh, their a lot of the, I guess, the branding part of it. And that's not really what I focused on. I did not have a company name. I did not have an idea of market value of what I was going to bring to the market. I just wanted my expertise to be known. So the website is basically my background. It's a website of my resume, to be honest. It's about my values, what is important to me, the volunteer work that I do. And it's just a get to know me in a snapshot of that. And then we started working on my social media image of making sure that, you know, what I am doing in my normal life, um, the, I'm on the board of directors for HR Tampa. And a lot of that comes with a lot of responsibility and a lot of networking on its own. So there's a lot of postings for that. Me working in the community, uh, meetings that I'm going to, community development that I'm working on, and just really getting who I am and why I'm an important value to an organization out there. And that was the start of it. And then after a few months of that, I basically took 90 days to start building. Um, so I had a resignation with my a 90 day resignation with my company. My last day was September 30th. And my first day with as a consultant was 10-1. And I did not have a gap in employment uh, through networking and just contacting with people. I was able to have the opportunity to consult with a mental health company, uh, they are mental health providers. And that's not my industry. That's not where I came from. And the beauty of, of HR is you can jump industries. And I'll talk about who my clients are because of that. So I had um, experience at an IT software company uh, for five and a half years. And then I was at a residential construction company for two and a half years. And then my first client was mental health. <laughs> and my second client um, by December 1st was a, or still is, a culinary manufacturing plant. So it's, and, and they have retail storefronts as well. So it's interesting that uh, now all, you know, the types of companies that I'm talking to range in multiple different areas of, you know, cybersecurity to manufacturing and uh, there's actually a PEO company, which I can explain what that is. It's basically where uh, companies outsource their payroll and HR to a company. And then that company controls all of those um, legal aspects. And I'm talking to those types of companies to offer my expertise into how they should be uh, treating their, their clients. And so I'm either working that aspect and, or actually coming in and being the HR executive to multiple different companies. So I'm what's called a fractional HR executive. So I basically work part-time doing what I did as an executive for multiple companies. And I, I thought I was just going to be a consultant of helping companies develop their HR, develop the role and help other people that are already doing HR, like the office manager that may not have any direction or understanding of um, the vast knowledge that you really need in employment law and information from that you would get in certifications and things like that. and kind of help ramp up best practices for companies. But I was very surprised to find that 
Um, what I would say is small to mid-sized companies that by employee count. So my clients range from 20 employees to 200 employees. And, but most of them are considered large by their revenue size. So they're 3 million to 5 million in revenue, even though they don't have a lot of employees. Some of them are startups. They've only been in business for eight months. Some of them have been around for three to five years. Um, some of them have been around for almost 10 years. So they're in many, many stages of, of their, their own company's path. And I come in as the, either the only HR person, the highest level HR person and help streamline a lot of their processes. And so it's interesting that I've only been doing this since October. Um, by the end of, you know, last year, I, I had officially two clients and now we're in the middle of January and I have five clients. So, and I have to bring on a new consultant. And so I've established an LLC company that's taxed as an S corp that has the ability to pay payroll. And now I have to bring on an employee and pay them as an employee. So now I'm an official entrepreneur um, and a business owner. And that happened very, very quickly. I'm um, having, I didn't, I, I didn't do what would be normal, which would be market research to understand uh, what companies might want, it morphed into that as um, they came now with social media. They're coming to me um, as uh, I have, you know, a large local network. And a lot of what I do is on LinkedIn, to be honest, for the listeners out there. LinkedIn is very important for business communications and structures. So having a up-to-date um, LinkedIn resume, essentially, or your profile, posting on LinkedIn is really important. Uh, I also post on uh, Twitter, Instagram, um, and Facebook. And so I actually hired a, um, a social media specialist. Uh, someone I found, basically what, what my husband did was he found um, an, a very good Instagrammer who had, uh, I think she had about 50,000 followers. And con uh, she's here locally in Tampa um, and contacted with her and said, can you redo what you did? in a new image and she believed that she could and so she within just a few months I have you know a few thousand followers on Instagram um, and Twitter is up to a few hundred Twitter's a little bit harder to gain followers for at least what I'm doing from a professional standpoint um, but my Facebook is you know doing really well and then LinkedIn I went from only having uh, like 200 uh, connections back in May to almost a thousand now, um, just a few months later. And so now I have, I literally have people contacting me saying, I've seen you on social media. I've seen what you've done in the community. I want to talk to you. I've had coffee with the person. And then they say, I want to hire you. So it's very fast. Um, you know, just people now it's connections and, and being a part of the community. And that's how I'm finding my clients um, is really just being a part of the community and social media. Well, uh, the first thing that I'll say is I'm, I'm very proud of you and I'm very excited for you because I know, I know exactly as you were talking, um, I, I felt in my stomach the feelings that I'm sure that you are feeling now and, and are still going to be feeling and were feeling, which, are, which is a combination of anxiety, a combination of excitement, a combination of, um, I don't know if you had this feeling, but I always had a combination of like fear to a certain degree. Um, because of the biases and the perspectives that have been kind of pushed in our heads that, um, you know, there's a certain level of security, which there is with a job to a certain degree. 
But um, but what I really like about what you're doing, and uh, a lot of the listeners know that I will, I don't know when, guys, <laughs> but I will um, jump back into entrepreneurship um, before I have a child, which is a whole <laughs> other conversation. Um, I have this, this, I don't even want to say it's an odd perspective, but because I don't want to get too much on that topic. But um, I, I don't believe, for me personally, that uh, I would want to, in the beginning stages of try to start something entrepreneurial while the kid's in the world, it's just a weird dynamic, I think. It's, but It's funny that you say that, um, that I, I've been, I, I was feeling more like starting a company is like having a child. There's many similarities of that. I do there not is. have children, but I do have um, nieces and nephews and, and godchildren. Um, but the, it's, it's a lot of, it's very hard work. It's a lot of long hours. There's no sleep and trying to do this on top of schoolwork. Um, having that kind of, it's a lot of dedication. It's a lot, it's a lot of tears, <laughs> blood, sweat, and tears. You have to have focus. You have to have vision and starting up a family at the same time that is pulling you in different directions and causing additional lack of sleep is definitely a bad idea. Something will fail. Either you'll be a bad parent or you'll be a bad business person, but it's not easy (laughs) to do everything. And so it's, it was funny. Um, There was a, I found a little blog that was comparison, comparing a business startup to being a new parent. And it had, it kind of had these like 10 things that brought that in common. And so, as I mentioned, I don't have children, um, but I've been married for 12 years now. And so I had sent a text to my parents saying my husband and I finally had a baby and its name is Griffin resources. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So, and they were there. My dad was an entrepreneur, so he was very proud. My, my mom was very proud as well. So it was, uh, I think it was just as, I don't know if it would be just as proud of becoming a grandparent, but it was, it was definitely a comical comparison. So it's funny that you say that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just a perspective I've, I've always had, but, um, uh, I will definitely be jumping back in and, and, and the format that I'm going to be jumping back in, I think what I'm going to be stealing from you and what I really like that what you did is I've always to some degree had, I've had the structure of how I was going to do it um, in my head. But now that I have met someone that I've heard how you're doing it, uh, I've kind of convinced myself that that structure is correct, which is um, I've always thought, that I would work with anywhere between six to 10 brands over the course of a year at a boutique level. Um, Price points can vary just depending on what I'm doing, obviously. Um, But those six to 10 uh, would make up, you know, financially what I need throughout the year. Um, And for me, I would kind of be injecting myself into the business model, taking my brain and and injecting into the founders and and, and executives and whoever, whoever is in the company and, uh, and, and and finding different ways to bring value in different capacities of of what I do as it pertains to employee experience. Um, But I really like the way that you kind of uh, are are doing uh, part-time work for uh, five different brands. I think it's very interesting. I think it's a way that you can, um, get to know the brands at a more personal level than a lot of other clients. I mean, not clients, uh, consultants that are not doing that, that have, let's call it 15, 20, 30, 40 different clients where there may be, you know, a few hours a month of, of actual 
strategy and getting to know people and work being conducted, I think you uh, probably have a little bit more of a, a good pulse on the brands because of your involvement. Um, and so I really like the way that you've actually designed that. Yeah, I work honest. with them about, depending on who they are, 20 to 30 hours a month. Um, and it's a lot more lucrative that way. I can charge a lot more um, per hour. And I, I come into their company as part of them. So I, That's what I, mean. I have yeah. an email address with them. That's what I mean. Uh, yeah. Their employee, uh, some of their employees don't know the difference if I'm actually employed with them or an outside vendor. Um, I have yeah. the authority to, I have the decision-making authority of their HR. I, um, I don't have, I would say document signing authority, but I do sign documents as a witness of the company. So if there's a written warning, um, I do sit in on those. I do help if there's a, um, you know, employee relation investigation. I, I work with the owners on that. If a background check, you know, has a hit on it that ends up, we can't hire the person going through the affirmative action process and being a part of those decision-making processes of what's best for the business. That's, uh, they're relying on me for those decisions and to help walk the business through some of those difficult kind of landmines. And as I'm, uh, a lot of it is I'm recruiting with them, like on site, having people come in for interviews, um, being a part of their onboarding. So I'm one of the first people they meet on behalf of the company. Um, so, you know, my, you know, who I am and, and my knowledge and everything just looks like it's a big part of the company. And so I've seen it, some consultants, yeah, where they only do a couple hours a month and their prices are much lower. I've seen for the HR space, I've seen um, many companies where they'll just charge $99 a month and they just try to have volume versus what I do. And they basically have a landing platform or a chat kind of platform where they communicate with their clients that way. Yeah, I don't like and, that. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, so for me, I have one client, whereas someone else with that platform, and I've seen that platform five or six times now, where people just have, you know, 100 to $150 a month per client, and they have access to like these documents, it's very similar to having access to Sherm, to be honest, and Sherm is a very good website to, I actually do um, search the Sherm website for um, templates and documents and things like that, just to give a baseline of language and what I'm looking for. Uh, it's very similar to that concept. That's all that they're out there and that they're doing and they're not customizing anything. They're not customizing handbooks or doing anything on a real level for them. And when I talk to consultants that do that, which is very great, it's a very good business model for those that have it and for the companies that that's what they can afford to do especially when they're much smaller. But I think that there's a, a greater value and a greater need out there that companies are looking for of if you can put in the time. And so for me, bringing on my first employee, um, the, the people that I am interviewing now are um, very similar to my background, um, you know, educated, you know, um, at, you know, at master's degrees with, you know, eight to 10 years of experience with, you know, high level HR management experience so that they come in as part of my brand, but then they also have to do the same concept where they become part of the company, they become a part of that company's branding. And so it, it takes a unique kind of push to do that. And so I do have the intent to grow beyond myself as far as my business, um, have multiple consultants 
and then be able to, you know, bring in um, a lot of different business, be able to have those consultants work in those companies that way. And then I oversee their work. And then my plan, um, I should be, I'm hoping to be done with my PhD in two years. Um, to the, so then I, you know, basically can come in as the, you know, the doctor and the expert and oversee the organizational development for my own company, as well as my clients and bring the value in that way. So it's right. a unique kind of business model that I'm building. Um, and I was very surprised to see that there, it's being very well received a lot faster than I had anticipated. Well, that's beautiful. And, and I think the last thing I'll say, uh, which is uh, a tip to you, because I've been in your shoes before prior. Um, uh, I, I've, so for, for you personally, I don't know if you remember, and then some of the listeners, I don't actually know if I've actually talked in depth. I've always said that I was not, I don't know if they actually know what I did. So my very first company, I had about 35 people under me. It was a, a year round football academy, an American football academy. Uh, we provided um, the actual physical training. We, we provided um, year-round um, um, educational tutoring for high school and college athletes to make sure that things were up to par. And then we also provided psychological training from a sports perspective. Um, we uh, had about a $2 million uh, facility that we partnered up with. Like it was, you know, partnerships with Under Armour. So it really grew pretty quickly. And uh, very similar to your story, uh, I pretty much within an 18 month span had about 35 people working under me. And I guess the only tip or insight or perspective that I would give to you that uh, I didn't think about thoroughly, which kind of brings us into the employee first business second conversation, which I don't necessarily want to go into yet. Cause I know that's an interesting conversation that we had when we first met. And then now I think you're starting to come into the dark or the light side. <laughs> You're starting to come to my side now, maybe. Um, but the tip that I'll, I guess I will give to you, and then as I always give to everyone, is, um, you know, you know, there's, there's a lot of, as consultants and as thought leaders in this space, we do a lot of standing at the top of mountains, screaming about treating employees with respect and, you know, creating an employee experience that, um, allows them to retain with the company, allows them to be excited to come to work each day. All these, you know, fluffy things that we know can be translated into legitimate ROI, um, legitimate, you know, movement with the business. But then when we actually have the hiring power and we become entrepreneurs ourselves, there are a lot of people that are in your shoes right now that forget that, right? There's a ton of, there's a ton of HR consultant companies that I'm sure um, consultancies, I'm sure, are forgetting about what they're delivering for other clients to their own staff, right? You know, it's, I'm really, that's actually a very good point because I, I was getting into that as, I, as I'm, I'm, I'm just like, I'm so stressed. I just want someone to be here uh, and I'm trying to expedite the process, which is where a lot of, I, I see a lot of in my clients, they get into this, I, you know, just go hire somebody well, I wanted to hire somebody that was very qualified and I was putting the same assessments in place to make sure that I was bringing them on the actual onboarding process. Um, I'm not prepared for it. Like I don't have, um, my non-compete ready. I, you know, and I want to hire the person on Monday and I don't have any of that ready. You know, um, as far as, you know, my husband who again is an amazing business person started to think of that ahead of time. Cause he's, 
he's always like 10 steps ahead of me. Um, but he ordered their computer. Um, so whoever we bring on, as soon as we bring them on, you know, we have, we're ready with their equipment. We're ready with, you know, they're setting up an email address and, you know, everything is ready for them to feel onboarded and feel very quickly a part of the company. And I was not really thinking about that. I was, you know, trying to focus on Mm -hmm. the customer service side that I will be delivering Mm -hmm. and how are my clients going to be impacted by the decisions I'm making versus how is the new employee going to be impacted by the decisions I'm making for them? Exactly. Exactly. And I, I, you know, that was conversations that I had to start to, like my husband had to call me out on that, that I was, I was not, I was not thinking that way. So that is very, very good advice. I think, you know, people, and I had kind of said to him, you know, it's the whole adage of, you know, the cobbler's children have, you know, don't have good shoes kind of concept. Uh, yep. No, 100%. <laughs> it's, um, no, 1000%. It's something that I noticed. Um, it's something that I, I've noticed time and time and time again, as I've, as I've been networking now um, and, and realizing some things. Uh, and, you know, yeah, that onboarding experience itself, because, you know, this is the way I look at it. And, and I made a piece of content where I did this, where I was kind of like getting a little bit aggressive in my podcast. I was kind of screaming because uh, of my sports background. I get a little excited sometimes. But you now, Michelle, and I don't want to scare you. And I'm sure you, you know, you seem like a very strong woman. So I don't think I'm going to scare you. But um, you now have the responsibility of of someone else's livelihood, you know, Um which I don't think a lot of leaders look at it that way or even acknowledge that or, or, or are aware of that. You know, if they do their, if they do their part, you know, let's grant it because that's why you hired them. If they do what they're supposed to be doing, if they are successful at their role and they have not done anything that would allow them to be removed from your brand, you now have the responsibility of creating an experience that is pleasant for them, that brings the most and the best out of them. And, puts the food on their table. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a big responsibility that a lot of founders and a lot of CEOs are ignoring every single day. And it pisses me off. So um, it's a big responsibility. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but. Um, yeah. um, oh, you're going to so, push back. Ooh. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's, it's also something that I, I had I'm excited. kind of forgot. And um, so it's, I, I don't have, funding at this point i haven't saw i haven't done any kind of funding campaigns Uh um in order to have that financial security for Mm -hmm. a person um although my husband that's kind of where he is going again thinking 10 steps ahead is already starting to have conversations with um, people we do know that either have funding opportunities or networking opportunities to go get the funding um so there there may be opportunities to do that quickly should we should we need it um but we are trying to grow it organically (laughs) so uh i don't want to be in debt i'm trying to get out of debt personally so that i can um not have any kind of personal debt or or company debt take out company loans at this point so i have not i do have a bank account now um, I think I've had it about a week, um, but I'm trying not to do any kind of bank loans or funding because um, I don't want to have to give up um, ownership of the company and things like that for or equity in the company or, you know, things like that that come with funding. So 
I, but I do understand that if the company needs to cover payroll, that that is something that um, has to, you know, has to happen. It has to be a priority. And so we're trying to make sure the company has that financial stability because we have, you know, I've, I literally have had my established LLC since December 19th. And for those that are you know, listening at a later time of this, it is January 18th. So I've had my company yeah. for one month. Um, so tomorrow I will be one month old. Okay. Um, so yeah, this is, you know, I, I just have an established EIN number, just opened a bank account. And now I'm trying to figure out how to process, do payroll taxes and get everything set up for that. So, yeah, and now I'm asking someone to come in and say, I don't have a way to pay you. I don't have my payroll process set up yet. Um, I, I believe that, you know, based on the reoccurring revenue that I have set up with my clients and the meetings that I'm having next week, you know, those should lead to closed business. And this is the revenue we're expecting. Are you willing to take the chance and come on board with us? And that is asking a lot of someone that is not part of the brand that hasn't, you know, well, technically it's from the beginning because our beginning is right now. But, you know, it's it's definitely something that's a risk for them. And it's, you know, it's got to be someone that's willing to to put in the risk as well. And it's, it's asking a lot of an employee and that when you grow and, you know, a lot of times that's the whole point of being an employee versus an entrepreneur is like you said earlier, it's a security blanket. You know, you, you want to know that the company is going to be reliable, is going to pay you, going to offer benefits and provide you as the employee, the security that you're looking for, for being an employee. And now it's my responsibility to offer those securities. And, um, and I'm asking someone to come on board with, without that. So it's, it, it's definitely scary, um, but I hadn't actually put time into thinking about that. So thank you. <laughs> no, no you're, no, you're welcome. No, yeah, it's it's something that, you know, just being 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 in your shoes, you know, two times prior, um, my first time, I dropped the ball completely on that. And to be frank, that's why, not necessarily for that reason, but it's part of the reason of not cultivating that experience, not being thoughtful about, you know, all the things that I talk about in this podcast of why that business is no longer here. Um, and then, but the second time around, um, I, I was much more thoughtful about it, but, uh, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll go into tip a little bit of some tips here that I think, um, I personally want to know and learn from now that I have a new role. And I'm sure a lot of the audience, um, uh, the listeners, the audience are going to eventually, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that we're like in this big auditorium speaking to <laughs> audiences right now. Um, the listeners, um, are going to, to take some say, take some uh, some insights from what I'm about to talk about now, which is organizational change, right? Because that's from what I'm understanding potentially can be what's happening with some of the clients that you're having now. So, give me personally the tip, and then also I guess give me some insights on your perspectives on organizational change, on you know how you can conduct change with a CEO or certain members of the executive team and get them to buy in to your perspectives if they are outside the box or different than what they've known prior, how you can have employees kind of jump on board because that's what I'm going through right this moment and I need your help and support. (laughs) Um, I have very outside the box perspectives, probably more than you, I would think maybe because I'm uh, a little less traditional, but at the same time though, um, I think, there's value in, in, in hearing 
how you go about it because at the end of the day, um, I still need to learn and I need to grow. Uh, the the CEO that I'm working with and the, the executive team, they've been doing things a certain way over the last six years. Um, and after six long conversations, he has now bought into a lot of my perspectives. And so he's expecting me to now sell the other members of the executive team, as well as the other members of the 50, they have about 50 employees. So the other 50 employees that my perspectives uh, around all things that I'm going to be working on with this particular company um, are going to be the right ones. And, 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 and we're going to be able to move forward effectively and, and conduct this change. And it's all going to go over smoothly, which I know is a lot easier said than done. So talk to me about that. Yeah. So I, well, I, I don't want to say I'm an out of the box thinker um, because typically what I like to implement is scientific results. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but with that being said, what science says is a best practice is not what businesses do as a best practice on Mm -hmm. a normal basis. So, um, there's been, I've, I've watched many Ted talks and podcasts about, you know, people that are saying there's, there's really good science out there for, you know, the best way to hire people is doing structured interviews with assessments and, you know, evaluating behavior and ethics and having all of this data on your applicant. And a lot of companies don't do that. They look at their resume, they'll get references, which are not that valid, by the way. Not at and, all. <laughs> and then that. they do an open-ended interview And then they hire the person and they have, you know, the validity behind that is the absolute worst way to hire people, but it's just what's been done. Um, And so my background with IO psychology, I tend to rely a lot on science to, to say, okay, this is the validity of what has been studied to, for the last 70 years, here's some changes that have been made and you know, IO psychology has been around a little over 100 years. It was one of the first established psychology platforms. And it kind of ramped up around uh, World War II. And it started with the military because the military and the government wanted to understand uh, essentially employee experience from the, from the government standpoint and, and the military standpoint. And that's what started it. And so that's where IO psychology got its roots. So there's been a lot of research studies on, on, on exactly that, on employee experience or different ways of doing things. And so it's not necessarily outside the box of, of what knowledge is out there, but it is outside the box for what companies are actually doing and implementing. So when I am trying to help companies to say, look, you have a really high turnover. And the reason why is because you may have a, po- a poor employee experience and you, you know, your hiring practices are not sound. And so here's some data on why these things could be better, how they could be improved, but then actually implementing changes. And this is, I think, an interesting way to answer your question. You have to prove that what you're going to do, one, you you can show them how you're going to prove what you're implementing is going to show the results. So you can say the the intended results are these, Mm -hmm. but then how are you going to measure it? So are you going to use, you know, turnover numbers? Are you going to use uh, revenue per head, um, time to fill, or, you know, whatever different metrics that are out there from like an HR perspective that makes sense to what you're measuring? 
um, employee, you can, there's employee engagement surveys that are valid that you can use. So you can do an, you know, a survey and then a year later do another survey, obviously retention rates, uh, things like that are, you know, so you can do open-ended survey feedback, which is qualitative research versus quantitative research. So there's different things that are out there, even for people that aren't like scientifically minded, there's surveys that you can put together to make sure that you're getting the feedback from the employees. But what the executives want to know is how exactly are you going to implement that? How disruptive is it going to be? And how can you do it without actually causing disruption? So they don't want disruption, but they need disruption in order to get the results. Yeah. So you have to, so in, with one of my clients, um, I need to change the way that they hire people. I need to change the employee experience. And they already knew that they already had ideas they didn't have the time to implement them. And so now they're trying to, you know, kind of force some implementations of employee experience or like, you know, feedback information or shout outs and, you know, recognition programs that are unnatural because they're just trying to squeeze it in and the little bit of time that the managers might have. And not everyone's following through. You know, some of the employees are getting recognized and some aren't. And so now there's the appearance, you know, there could be not now, but there could be a, the appearance of favoritism right now that company is doing very well. But um, they were starting to have the idea they wanted to put in career pathing and be very open and honest with their employees about how they really do care about them. They you know, really want them to understand their value that they bring to the organization so that they see their small job has a really big impact to the corporate, the corporation as a whole, their customers, and, you know, really kind of bring the, their community involvement as a piece of their job, you know, make them feel that, but they, they already know they need that, you know, especially the CEO, a lot of CEOs have are very visionary and they care about their companies and they care about their employees. Um, but they're also just trying to get the job done. So it comes into place of you have these ideas and you know that implementing them is going to cause disruption. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times the companies don't want to feel the disruption. So how are you going to implement disruption without anyone feeling disrupted? And so you have to have a, a really strategic plan in place on, I'm going to continue to make sure we're hiring. I'm going to continue to make sure that you know the employee experience is there. And then over a period of time, we're going to change these aspects at one at a time or several at a time. Um, you know, we're going to do, you know, a survey and then we're going to get the you know employees buy in on these changes. We'll announce things at quarterly meetings or monthly meetings. And, you know, so you're kind of starting to make sure people are involved and they understand what's going to change and how they're going to change it. And um, we're going to maybe bring in training or do, you know, different feedback structures or reviews or whatever, you know, salary changes, things like that, whatever it is you're changing um, to make sure that and how disruptive you're going to be, but to try to do it in a way that no one actually feels it and it feels positive the whole time. Um, so it's, that has been, I think, a, a struggle that I've had to kind of provide to in the you know communication structure with the executives of, I have all these great ideas and these are things I want to change and here's how I'm going to change them, but then do it in a way that no one actually felt anything other yeah. than the and other than the end result in, in a you know kind of a longer term capacity that's a weird way to think about it no and, and and as you were talking you know what i've been thinking myself that i think may potentially be issues at times when it comes to change that i'm just thinking through my own personal situation and if i can use this moment to kind of vent to you and 
and figure out a way that I can navigate this more effectively. Um, you know, I've realized that there's there's two there's there's two worlds when you're dealing with business when you are trying to conduct change, right? There's one world where you need to sustain, right? There's a there's a level of we are we are conducting best practices that are allowing our business to live on a day-to-day basis. We're allowing our business to make payroll. We are allowing our business, like we have things we have to get done based off of the structure of what we've been doing over the last six years, 15 years, 30 years, whatever the case is going to be. But then there's the other side. There's another world, which is the innovation, the change, the, the new things that need to be put in place. And what I'm realizing for me personally, and I'm sure there's a lot of other people that are, that are out there that have gone through this, I'm realizing they're trying to plug me into, and, and as I'm talking, even right this moment, I'm probably going to send an email after this. They're trying to plug me into that old world and kind of just get me ingrained, which I think there's value there. I need to kind of understand the personalities and the the consistency factors and, and kind of get a good pulse of what's been happening prior. But um, they're, they're just kind of like trying to get me into the flow of what's already been happening and trying to like push some of the ideas that they originally had into, I guess, my day-to-day inner workings without allowing me to conduct innovation and true change and and and, and actually make a difference. Am I making sense here? I feel like I'm not being super clear. Um, yes. Okay. So they so they want you to be innovative, but they want you to do the things that they've done for the last six years. That they've done for the last six <laughs> years. And like you said, what, what really sparked the idea was what they, like they already had a list of things that they wanted to do, but they're so busy they couldn't do it. So they kind of just throw it at me and that's fine. But you, I, what I need them to remember, you brought me in to conduct change. You brought me in based off of my innovation abilities. You brought me in to make a radical change, not to just implement things that have kind of been touched on a little bit or have already been done. Yeah. And I think, I mean, in a, even at, you know, it companies that are, up and coming and and want they have a lot to they have a, a big world to compete with the it companies out there are massive that that are massive have are very well known for their culture and you know like zappos and google and amazon you know they are very well known for setting the bar pretty high Hi. for employee experience so it's other IT companies tend to have to try to compete with that. And innovation is a big part of that. So it kind of says, who can think outside the box? Who's going to have some great ideas? And what are we going to do with those ideas? And then when you get strange ideas, people are like, nope, that's too strange. Mm-hmm. And you know, then they get really scared again. So it's a fine balance, I think, of having to you know, have the push to say, you know, let's take a chance on this. Let's try some new and innovative ways of doing things. And, you know, I think there's a, obviously like it's pretty famous now and I forget the time frame that the, Google does this, but they have a certain percentage of, you know, free thinking time. And that's where Google mail has come from, you know, that was just part of the letting people go and be innovative and say, you guys go come up with new ideas and, you know, the the pictures of when you log into the Google search bar and how that image changes, I don't know, every day, every other day, how often that changes. Those are new ideas that come from within. 
And so they've been, they're very well known for giving the time, space and structure to be innovative. And they, I think the other, another piece of Google that has come out of that free thinking timeframe that they have was the ability to search for movie times. So if you, you know, now you can go in and Google will tell you the movie times of your lo- your local location and, and it's part of the search results that show up very quickly. And that was part of a, an innovative internal change that they did. And, you know, they, so they've had a lot of, they're a really good leader when it comes to stuff like that. And that's a really good example of saying, you know, if we do something different, granted it's scary and we have to have infrastructure possibly behind it, but here's some, you know, different ways of doing things and here's good ideas. And, you know, you can't be a leader of change if you don't innovate and you don't pivot and you don't change. And that's what happens to, you know, the companies that go out of business like Blockbuster and Kodak and all of these companies that, had the opportunities to pivot and change. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe um, Blockbuster had the opportunity to merge with Netflix and didn't. Yep. Um, Kodak was actually one of the first companies to develop a digital camera and said it was too new or too different technology and killed the project and never created their own digital camera, even though they were, the, I believe, one of the first to come up with it. Um, and then they died because they couldn't, you know, they were stuck on producing film and things like that. And, and yep. part of what happened was Kodak. So, you know, there's, they, some of them had the opportunity, they had it right in front of them in their fingertips and lost it because they were too afraid of innovation and change. So there's, I think that there's a lot of ways to show demonstration with companies to say, you know, it's probably a hard sell to try to say, you know, do this or die, but it's the idea of, you know, kind of having Jesus examples to, to say, like, you have to, you know, there's been a lot of um, talks at HR conferences about being ready for change, being pivotal, you know, and being able to do, you know, kind of quick transitions in within your own industry, you know, with a lot of people in HR are very scared about technology changes, um, trying to prepare for how many jobs is that going to displace? How is this going to impact the companies that we're serving? And how, you know, you know, it's people are very becoming very, very aware of all the technology changes and, and how that might impact normal day to day jobs that we're currently serving. You know, 10 years down the road, how are we going to prepare the employees we have now to stay employed five or 10 years from now as technology changes so quickly? You know, so, you know, we went from, you know, 15 years ago, you know, 20 years ago using carbon paper, you know, pretty frequently to now everything is very, you know, very easy on computers, you know, that kind of concept of things in the last 10 years have changed. And I think it's changing so quickly. People don't remember what the business world, you know, it seems almost like ancient ago that those were the kind of ways people were doing business. And you have to change really quickly now, or, or a lot of companies don't make it. I mean, there was the, the bubble that burst that killed, you know, that, that killed tons of businesses. No, a, th- a thousand percent, a thousand percent. And, and and I'll leave it like this and then I'll move on to uh, a topic that I'm ex- excited to dive into. Um, I'll leave it at this. I will say this, you know, the tip that I gave to, to, to my CEO and the tip that I was giving to the executive team on Friday or yesterday, on Friday, uh, on yesterday was, you know, 
I'm a big fan of splitting our focuses and our time into two different directions. You know what I mean? Like I, I definitely respect and understand that we still have to, you know, manage the day-to-day business and keep everything afloat because if we don't, we allow things to kind of fall by the wayside. Uh, the business itself uh, will eventually um, take some damage, but, um, but we definitely need to set aside time to have strategy conversations, have strategy meetings, implement new change, you know, test and understand and, and record data off of that change, figure out what works, figure out what, why it didn't work, kind of understand the psychology behind it, how we feel about it and, and, and find different ways to kind of, kind of move towards that groove. Like I've always, that's the way I've always kind of ran my personal businesses. I've always split it right down the middle. There will be best practices and day-to-day tasks that will allow us to sustain and live. And then there will be, you know, uh, allocated time, that we strategically put into our Google calendar to make sure that we are being thoughtful about the future, being thoughtful about change. Cause if we do not, um, you'll be in a situation where you went from zero to 1.5 million in three years. And then you're wondering and scratching your head of why you're still at 1.5 after, mm-hmm. at, at year six. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? And, and I think that's an issue with a lot of brands. So, um, I do appreciate those insights. And again, uh, I am going to probably make a cultivate a thoughtful email because I want to start this relationship off on the right foot. Um, I want to um, make sure that I'm comfortable, but at the same time that I'm bringing true value to the brand, because I think, I think a lot of leaders can also hurt themselves, right? I think a lot of leaders can, cannot even realize that they are um, enabling you know, or, or not enabling innovation, that they are actually holding back their own team from making change. And then, and then inevitably in a weird way, they may start to blame that team member seven months down the road when they were the ones that actually stifled that, that innovation, if that makes any sort of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I guess let's dive into employees first, business second. All right. <laughs> uh, and I think, I think we'll, uh, and if you're open to it, let me just say this now because I'm looking at the time, getting pretty long-winded here. Um, if you're open to it, I've been doing this. Um, I would love to conduct a part two with you. Okay. Um, if you're open to that. I mean, I'm looking at the time. We're going on about an hour and 15 minutes, and we still have five really thorough conversations. I mean, this could be a Joe Rogan-style episode if you really wanted it to be. Um, are you familiar with that podcast, Joe Rogan? <laughs> no. Oh, no? You don't know about Joe Rogan? Uh-uh. Do you remember? I, sh- I probably should, but no. Do you remember Fear Factor? Yeah, but so I didn't you're... know we had a podcast. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I. Oh wow. All right. So your husband probably knows potentially. Um, Joe Rogan, guy from Fear Factor, um, the main influencer for the UFC now. Um, he has an amazing podcast called the Joe Rogan Experience. He has three, four-hour conversations with people. Um, oh my goodness yes so that's why i gave that example i said we're <laughs> going to start to get into the joe rogan experience style here um if we keep going on with these topics so i would love to conduct a part two with you if you're open to that yeah perfect um all right so let's wrap it up with this though because i know when we very first talked guys anyone that's <laughs> listening um it, it wasn't a tough conversation but i could tell from the beginning of me starting to talk that our viewpoints on this are going to be a little bit different. Um, And now that uh, I believe Michelle is now working with some brands and looking at things from a different angle, 
I think from what she told me, she may be coming a little bit closer to my side of the E1B2 model and the perspective. Um, give me your thoughts. Tell me if you still <laughs> feel that way. And let's let's have this talk. So, yeah. So when we first started talking, um, my uh, which was I think it's been several months now when we first kind of connected. It's been um, at least three months. Yeah. Yeah. So my mentality had always been as an HR person, as an HR executive, my role in the business was to protect the company. It had always been my mindset is protect the company. If, you know, protect it from, you know, potential issues of obviously we don't want to mistreat employees. So because we don't want, you know, to open up exposure to the company, you know, we want to make sure that the company is going to stay financially sound so that we can continue to conduct business and pay our employees. So, you know, everything was, yes, treat the employees well, treat everyone with respect and make sure everyone is kind of doing their job that helps elevate the company. And my perspective was always kind of look at the company first and make sure that the company is making good business decisions that impact the employees. So, and how that's going to impact the employees and make sure that the employees are going to have, you know, the good experience at work. But my perspective started with the company and then trickled down to the employees. Um, then we had our conversation mm-hmm. and that was a lot about turning that on its head and making the employee experience first, which then elevates the company experience and becomes the cycle. Uh, you ha- if you start from the ground up and make sure that the employees are, are really doing really treated with respect and humanely, then that's going to make a better business. And you're going to not have that exposure risk when you're trying to do the right thing most of the time, obviously. So after our conversation, that had become a common theme of things I was hearing all the time. So, um, there's a kind of a uh, community called hashtag humans first. Mm-hmm. And I ended up on a conference call with a group of people that are business, either business owners or executives, uh, HR leaders, kind of that kind of community and talking about their perspective of humans first and, they're, they're trying to take the stance of, you know, how do we make sure that humans are taken care of, especially with technology changes, especially with growing businesses and growing internationally. And this is a really good time for companies to, to be profitable. They have the opportunity to grow further and faster because they can cross borders a lot easier than they could in the past. Travel is cheaper and easier and faster. And so, you know, and technology is so easy to, you know, communicate internationally now. So it's, it's very easy for companies to grow beyond their smaller communities. But that also loses track of taking care of humans and, you know, being mindful of culture and the, you know, diversity and different people and being respectful of, of those different cultural, you know, cultural different, you know, cultural different differentiations. (laughs) So that has become a really common topic now. And there's 
Um, even I unfortunately did not get to join the call yesterday because I ended up on site at a company a little bit longer than I had anticipated. But there was a call about, um, you know, basically the humanitarian side of things, making sure that people are being treated as humans, you know, the, you know, don't, don't think of it as a human cog in a wheel for a, you know, a corporation, you know, think of them as humans and be very respectful of that. And, you know, don't, don't abuse people for the sake of the business advancement, Um, you know, working long hours, that's not healthy. Um, you know, really taking care of the people that you're, you're asking them to work third shift one week, you're not making them work first shift the next week, because now you're missing, you're messing with their sleep rhythms. And, you know, and a lot of times there's a lot of hard work we're asking people to do. And it's, it's really just not humane. So there, those kind of topics are happening a lot now. And I even went for a hashtags humans first, I even went to a, a conference in Chicago while I was there and got to meet a lot of the people that I had been having some calls with and see who, you know, kind of see them in person. And really, it was really an interesting experience there. They had a speaker from Southwest that was absolutely amazing. And he had told a story of the experience of working at Southwest. And this really touched me because it was the business aspect kind of that I had thought of, but it was how to, how to, how to really do employees first. So he had worked, I forget how long he had worked with Southwest, a couple of decades, like 20 something years, 18, 20 years, something like that. And as he was progressing through his career path, he had the opportunity to interview for a manager position. And I really wish I could remember this man's name. Um, but, and I would give him a shout out because he's an absolutely amazing person. And he had said that while he was interviewing for his manager position, he was asked very specifically, name a time that you broke a rule and uh, for, for, you know, you know, for an employee experience kind of thing. And he was like, is this a trick question? Like, why would you ask me that? And he answered with when he was a flight attendant, there was a passenger that was landing in the dark had this was you know years ago before you know uber and lyft and everything was nervous to take a taxi didn't know where they were going and he was ending his shift and he lived in that city and he offered to drive that person home and the the person interviewing him said you realize how much of a liability situation you put the company in to take care of that passenger and he said yes i do and he was promoted and he got that manager position a thousand percent and sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't. Yep. Help. Yep. Nope. Exactly. And so that kind of story where Thousands. the company valued taking care of their, you know, their clients or their, you know, their passengers and they rewarded people that know, you know, there are certain times when you, you know, to do the right thing and you know, to take care of people. And it's nice to see companies that, are, are willing to reward behavior like that to say you, you know, you're going above and beyond and you're the right, you know, you know, person to brand us that way. And, you know, you know, Southwest is also known for when they bring on new employees, they literally will roll out a red carpet. Everyone stands around in cheers and they have their new hires walk the red carpet 
and they they cheer them on and they do that for every new hire at their corporation in the corporate building I guess so they're very well they are most of it very well known they try to do a really good employee experience and so speaking with corporations that have started or have always depending on who they are really cared about the employee experience that touched me in a way I didn't expect and reminded me of of trying to do that for my clients and now you know reminding me to make sure to do it for myself and my own employees as well um so yeah it's definitely that has my my perspective of that over the last few months has has changed well i'll say this first of all that was a beautiful example and a beautiful story um that is i'm so excited like i'm like i can't even breathe right now (laughs) that is literally um that is literally exactly what I've been trying to, I guess, you know, I guess trying to, you know, project to the world, which is there's a way to blend the two and there's a way to respect. There's a way to cultivate an experience in a culture where you make the best human being decision. Thus there will be a positive ROI the long term, like the likelihood of something going wrong it could have happened like something bad could have happened in that situation, but the, the managers and the executives, and I'm sure the CEO of Southwest, I'm sure they would have done something very similar if they were just a human being, right? If they were just a regular guy or gal, knowing that someone needed to get a ride home, I'm a positive that they would have done something like that because it's the right human being thing to do. And so often we become executives and we become founders and CEOs we start to, you know, look at the risk and start to assess things. And we start to get very analytical and, 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 and very driven off of, well, wh- what are the worst possibilities that could happen? And, and how is that going to affect the brand? And how, what's the PR hit that's going to be? And, and I've always felt that karm- karmically, and, and I don't want to get into too much of a spiritual conversation, but I've always felt for me at a karmic level and at just a common sense human being level, we should always follow that path rather than rather than follow another path because i'm quite sure uh this person went on to tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend who which then created some sort of revenue maybe not a lot but some sort of revenue that eventually got kicked back to this company i'm positive of it someone for a fact took a flight because of that story that she told someone at some point i'm positive of it and uh i think that was a beautiful story and you know there's so much more to the E1B2 experience that I've been that I've been talking about and that I've been trying to cultivate and create. And again, with my new role, I, I had to kind of break it down and, 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 and explain to them that, that there's so many different dynamics to simple things as it pertains to, you know, like company parties and outings, you know, all the way to how I conduct my one-on-ones, all the way up to compensation, to benefit structures, things of that nature. Now, now, I will say that the E1B2 model typically can be done at full scale with privately held brands, not uh, not companies that are in the government sector because there's so much red tape there. Um, but, uh, you know, so smaller brands, right? Brands that have 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 people that are privately ran and privately owned. There's a lot of flexibility that you can have with your overall employee experience in so many different directions. Um, well, even as companies grow, um, like this was a very kind of a, a very good, I would say like kind of a, something that the owners were proud of, um, at 
ConnectWise while I was there, it was very important for them to, regardless of how big the company got, it was, you know, almost a little more than 850 people when oh, I wow. left. Um, but they always made time for, to meet the new hires. Um, and we had a new hire lunch that we would do. Um, when the company got bigger, it was, um, it turned into almost like a, a, a small banquet. Um, and it would, it would be 20 people in a room. It went from being, you know, five people at a lunch. Um, even when I was hired, I, um, I went, I honestly, I was the person that organized the lunch and then I went on it, um, to meet the sit down with the CEO. Cause I worked directly with the COO for most of my job. And I didn't have a lot of interaction with the CEO and, you know, he still made an effort to know everyone's names and he wanted on their cubicles, wanted their names and their photos. So if they weren't at their desk and he saw them, he would know who he would know who they were. And, you know, when the company got bigger and that lunch became 20 people, he still didn't want it much bigger than that. So we would, you know, try to do it once a month or every six weeks to try to make sure that, you know, the people that had been hired in that time frame got to meet him. And, you know, it's small enough that you can still have one-on-one conversations and things like that. So it was always important to them, regardless of the size of the company, to to still provide that one-on-one time with the owner of the company, which is very valuable to, to people, you know, make, realizing that the CEO cares about them as an employee, wants to know their name, wants to know what they do, and walks around and sees them and says hi. So it, it doesn't have to be small companies. It can be big companies. It can. And making sure that that's an important, it just, it, I think it takes the, it takes an effort. It takes priority and, and motivation to do that. But it, it ultimately is the bigger impact of the employee experience. I'll, I'll give you one last example and then we'll wrap this up here uh, because you, you've done an amazing job in today's episode. And there's so much that we covered that a lot of people can learn from. Um, are you familiar with Jason Freed? No. Um, there's a there's a company called Basecamp. Uh, essentially, they uh, it's a platform that a lot of different brands use. I've used I use Basecamp. Yeah. Okay, so if you know Basecamp, so the the, fa- the the founder of that that of that platform is Jason Fried. Oh. Um, very very uh, big company in revenue, but not a very big company in employee size. Um, the only the only investor ever in its history is Jeff Bezos. So that kind of shows you the the type of respect that Jason has, has, has garnered throughout the, the community of, of tech and entrepreneurship. Um, I'm super excited about it because I don't know how I pulled this off. Uh, he's actually going to be on the podcast here in mid-February. So um, I'm super excited about that because that's I, cool. Yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm kind of fanboying out here because he has so many very interesting and practical um perspectives on employee experience that it's very rare in the tech space when it comes to how how personal he gets so let me give you this example and i want to get your thoughts on this and then we'll wrap this up he has a base salary model so this is how much of a a good human being and his his thoughtfulness around employee experience gets so the company is based in chicago but all the employees are remote, so they're circled throughout the entire country and at certain times of the world. He hires a small team to do the research on how much food costs, how much gas costs, the housing, extracurricular activities, private schools, anything, clothing, anything you can think of that would be 
that would be unique to that individual city that 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 employee lives in. And one by one by one, now this is obviously very different because this cannot be replicated in a company of 800 people. But um, he he creates a base salary model based off of where you live. So to give you a very simple example, uh, the employees that he has that lives in um, that lives in San Francisco, I believe their base salary model. And Jason, if I'm, I'm I'm messing this up, please correct me at some point. I believe it's in the eighty-five to ninety-five thousand dollar a year range. Now, let me give you a let me give you a, an example of this. Also, it doesn't matter what they do. It, it doesn't matter like it's the base. It doesn't matter if like because he has assistants on the team that make that. And then obviously it's scaled up based off of the value and the worth that they're bringing to the brand. So obviously, obviously the COO of Basecamp, if they live in San Francisco, is not getting 95000 But that is the base, the lowest amount that any human being in the company can get if they live in that area. So if they were to live in Maryland, I live in Maryland, it would probably be anywhere between like the 75000 to 80000 range, whatever it would be, right? When I heard this and I read this long blog, like I literally shed a tear, right? Because it was what I've been saying, but super tangible and super thoughtful. Like he actually took the time to understand how much food costs, how much extracurricular activities cost, how much housing costs, and and cared so much to make sure that he will pay you what you need to be able to be comfortable because he understands, number one, it's a good human being thing to do, but he's a very data-driven guy. And he also understands that stress of finances is one of the biggest in America. And he knows that if that stress is removed off of the table, that the levels of innovation, the levels of, 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 of working much more efficiently and, and, and not worrying about those stress factors uh, will, will, will help their overall improvement and value they can bring to base camp. That's a, it's that's really well one i would like to say that i i, I do use Basecamp on a regular basis so that's i do like cool. the platform so i will i will definitely give shout outs for that one um the the board of directors that i'm on for hr tampa uses Basecamp, camp so cool. i literally have to use it every single day um so the um but you know when i was looking at different jobs when i was an executive and transitioning away from ConnectWise and looking for a new position, I was interviewing across the country and I was talking to companies in um, New Orleans, Chicago, Atlanta, and Georgia, and here in Tampa. And so it's, um, it was interesting when I was talking to companies when they were saying, okay, well, our salary is this. And I'm like, well, my current salary is, is, you know, whatever it was at the time and transitioning from where I live to there would, that's not necessarily, I mean, it may not have been a, a salary decrease, but then there's state tax in some of those yeah. states. And, you know, that would affect both me and my husband. And so we would take a hit on his salary because then we would have taxes on his salary that we don't currently have. And so it was, you know, a negotiation of the hit that we're going to take because, of the differences between locations. And while we were trying to be very mind, we're, you know, at that point, we're the employee and we're trying to be very mindful of that as how that's going to impact me and my family and everything. And uh, as companies, they could only do so much about how they were going to trans, you know, how to structure the pay and transition someone like that. And some of it, they, 
you know, they didn't want to take tax into consideration or they didn't want to take healthcare cost into consideration when you're, you know, just kind of when you're moving and things like that. So it was, that's, I've never heard of that before. So yeah, like you said, it's, it's definitely something new and different and a really good way to take care of your people when you're hiring them from remotely or they, you know, they're moving. And if they move to another city, uh, you know, if they can remain employed, but their salary might need to change that the company is willing to look at that. Yeah. It's, it was, it was super, it's, it's for me, the best way to, to wrap that whole thing up. It's, it's just super thoughtful and, and super uh, polite like and, and just, and just makes sense for me. Right. Cause if someone were to do that for me, um, my perspective of that brand um, from the get go would be uh, a very good one. Right. Oh yeah. I'd be like, are you hiring? <laughs> exactly. Where do I sign? Exactly. Um, Michelle, uh, I, I really want to thank you for today. It's been uh, it's been a really great conversation. I think we, we, if, if you go back and give this a listen, we jumped into about five or six different buckets of, of, of a lot of value that a lot of different types of people can, can really enjoy from, from students to executives, to leaders, to, um, you know, our, our thoughtfulness and our, our approaches on, you know, having tough conversations and trying to create change to employee experience. So I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of good here uh, as well as entrepreneurship and kind of jumping out into the consulting world. So, um, what were your thoughts on today? I hope that there's, you know, value for, for others when I, you know, talk to either students or other professionals, you know, I, I hope that what I, what I've, knowledge that I have that I kind of share with others helps them in some way. So I, I hope that, that the listeners do find some value in this and um, can kind of take away some, some little nuggets of information and maybe, maybe help their world a little bit, a little bit better. Perfect. Um, Let's do a plug for anything that you have. Uh, I guess list off your LinkedIn, your Twitter, your website, um, because I can assure you, I don't know if it'll be tomorrow, but I can assure you that within the next 10 years <laughs> a client will come out of this podcast hopefully for you um so uh i guess do a quick plug on anything that you have going on so the easiest way to find me would be michellemaygriffin.com um you can right now with all of the ad- social media advancements that i do you can actually just google michelle may griffin and i will be the first few things that pop up at least as of right now so all of my connections through uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, email, um, my phone number, everything is all available on my website. So it's on that homepage. So if you just go to that, you'll I'm very easy to find. Beautiful. All right. Well, I appreciate this, Michelle. And we will definitely get a part two going very soon. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. We'll talk soon. Okay, bye.